Hello, my friend. Lost your way once again? You've got to find a new excuse, you know. <laughs> I get it, though. You just can't get enough of my tales, can you? Come on in. I was just about to light the fireplace anyway. I find that it always sets the mood for these types of stories you get to hear around this humble establishment. Besides, it's not wise to stay out in the woods for too long. Why, you ask? <laughs> Let's just say there are things out there, looking for people who've lost their way. But here we are again, getting ahead of ourselves. Settle down, my dear friend, and let us begin. Home is safe. It's just human logic, right? We think that, for some strange reason, no harm can fall upon us inside our own little fortresses. But your house is not safe. Not from them. When you're up against the horrors of the night, no wall, no door, no plausible barrier you can ever build between you and them will be enough to keep them away. About two months ago, I left for about a week on a business trip. It's pretty typical for me to travel and my wife and kids have gotten used to it. She'll usually take them out to eat while I'm gone or to a museum or something fun to make it up to them. We often joke about how the kids are going to start liking me better when I'm away than when I'm at home. Anyways, one of our partners pulled out at the last second and the meetings didn't take as long as we'd originally planned. Again, not unusual. But I decided that this time I wouldn't tell my wife. I thought I'd come home early and surprise them. Things didn't go exactly as planned. My connecting flight was canceled. I was rerouted but had a six hour layover. Instead of getting home at six like I'd planned, I was looking at pulling into the airport at around midnight, which is still an hour drive from my home. This wasn't terrible. They still had no idea I was coming and it might surprise them even more if they woke up with me there. I got home and the house was dark. It was a little after one when I arrived, so that was to be expected. But when I unlocked the door and slipped quietly in, the house felt empty. I slid my shoes off and headed into the kitchen. This home is the first we've ever owned, and we've lived here for almost four years now. Tanya was only three when we moved in and Michael had barely turned six. The move had me exhausted and the only thing I remember clearly from that day is Michael's excitement. It was the stairs. He ran up and slid down them on his stomach what must have been 20 times before my Abby came in and put a stop to it, ranting about the carpet and how we needed to take care of it. I nodded and supported her, but I could honestly care less about the carpet. I had plenty of memories doing the exact same thing growing up. What I wanted then was a home for my children. Somewhere they could make memories. Somewhere they could feel safe. Somewhere they could always return. From the moment he slid down those stairs, the house was that. But that night, as I walked into the kitchen, the house just didn't feel the same. Nothing was different. Something just seemed wrong. The hairs on the back of my neck were on end and I felt like I was somewhere I shouldn't be. I flipped the kitchen light on and the feeling was pushed back a bit by the light bathing the familiar landscape. I lingered, not because I was hungry, simply because I didn't want to turn the lights back off. I just sat there reading the paper until I couldn't justify staying awake any longer. 
I flipped the kitchen light off and the hairs on my neck immediately perked back up. The feeling of intrusion returned. I flipped the light back on. I walked over to the next room and turned the light in the living room on before switching the kitchen lights back off. I did the same thing for the stairs and the hallway, just like I had when I was a kid. It felt childish, but for whatever reason, I just didn't feel safe in my own home. I reached my room and I braced myself to flip the final light off. I did so and slipped quickly through my door. It was dark and I stumbled over a stool as I made my way across the room. My instincts worried about a hand reaching out from under the bed and grabbing my ankle, but my brain told me it was an irrational fear. I knew that if anything were to happen to me, it wouldn't be from monsters and it would have happened before I'd made it home. I could hear Abby's shallow breathing drift from the bed and I focused on that. It was comforting just to have her there in the room with me. Honestly don't know what my sleeping wife would have been able to do in the case of any danger, but her presence was peaceful. I focused on her breathing and hurried to change my clothes, sneaking into bed under the covers. I was safe, just like when I was a kid. The covers seemed to offset any outside danger or worry. The effects was even more so with somebody else in the bed, especially her. Abby'd always had a way of easing my worries. We first met in college during the most difficult semester of my life. I was taking various upper-level accounting classes and was drowning in assignments. I first saw her in the library and I couldn't focus until she'd agreed to let me take her to lunch. I don't know where I'd found the time, but we saw each other almost every day after that. Most days we would just sit and study, and the most effective work I ever did was to the sound of her snores. I snuggled up next to my wife and let her breaths lull me once more into a state of comfort, and then to sleep. I woke up the next morning to an empty bed in a quiet house. It was almost 11, so I assumed she'd gone off to run errands after the kids left for school. I fiddled around in bed on my phone scrolling through social media until I saw something that made my blood run cold. My first call was to Abby. My second, less than a minute later, was to the cops. They arrived in minutes. I told them what happened and showed them what I'd seen. It was a picture. A picture of my family. Michael was climbing on the furniture and Tanya was playing on the floor in a familiar background. Abby was in the foreground with her arm around her sister. The timestamp on the photo was from 11.46 the night before. My sister-in-law lives three hours away. I still have no idea who was in my bed that night. You can try to hide it all you want, but all of us, at one point or another, have dreamt of finding the ideal partner. That one person who's just flawless. Too good to be true, as they say. And they may be right. Perhaps some people are indeed too perfect to be real. Looking back, Henry is absolutely too good to be true. He was soft, but strong, and carried a kindness in his eyes that I had never seen before in a man. I'm not shy or bookish, but I wear my glasses with pride and spend the majority of my free time indulging in my borderline fetishistic fandoms. I have Star Wars tattoos on my forearm and quotes from Tom Harris etched into the flesh of my shoulder. For the last three years or so, I'd shirked my regulation work clothing in favor of my collection of superhero tees. Hell, I'm only writing this now because it's slow at the comic shop where I volunteer. 
Yes, I volunteer at a comic book store. So you could certainly say I'm a geek. I digress. You want to know about Henry. Henry was an angel, even from the first time I met him. The weather was frigid and dreary as I waded through the slowing traffic of a city after rush hour. My hands involuntarily losing steadiness as the cold seeped deeper into my bones. There wasn't much that could have forced me into such weather, not even work, but my weekly D&D session was not to be missed under any circumstances. My D&D group was a small family, meeting at least once a week to decompress, roll some dice, and live out an epic adventure. For a group of people who longed for something more than the mundanity of the 9 to 5, 2.5 children, white picket fence kind of life, it was heaven. Of course, hauling the 50-some-odd pounds of books, materials, dice, and provisions necessary for playing the game right wasn't a fun proposition when I had a car. Never mind, on foot. But, on principle, I refused to pay for a taxi. My buddy Todd's house was just a few blocks away from the apartment, so I filled up my backpack, shoved a bagel in between my lips, and began the journey. Of course, I didn't realize that the backpack wasn't zipped up properly as I hurried up the stairs toward the warmth and the soothing clack of rolling dice. The rush of cold knives that cut against my face as the wind bellowed through the apartment door thoroughfare distracted me. And in a tumult of echoing cacophony, years of collected work and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of materials, tipped out of my backpack. I wasn't worried so much about losing anything. But with each crash and clang, I winced as my once nearly mint-conditioned collection of books rapidly lost any monetary value. You see, my backpack decided to burst open at the exact moment I swung around the switchback of the stairwell. From three floors up and at a brisk run, there wasn't much I could do to stop things from flying over the short railing designed to stop humans from drunkenly falling and taking a dive. Many figures destroyed. Books with broken spines, dice rolled so far under unreachable purchases, it was hardly a surprise when my foot slipped on a stealthy die. I plummeted backwards, confident that I was going to crack my head against the cold cement below. A sharp pain coursed through my body. I might have screamed, I'm not sure. There were thousands of thoughts whirling through my head, but one stood amongst them. You must have rolled a natural one. I chuckled to myself, and everything faded to black. I don't remember waking up. I was falling one minute, staring at his face the next. And boy, what a face it was. Blue eyes, soft skin, and cheekbones that might as well have been chiseled from marble. All gathered rather handsomely under a tuft of wavy blonde hair. He smiled a sympathetic smile as he held out a hand. Henry, he introduced himself, helping me up and gesturing toward the neatly collected books I smiled as I quickly checked them over. Sure, they were no longer mint, but they certainly didn't look all that much worse for wear. And to boot, a literal Prince Charming had done all the work for me. He even managed to find most of the dice, at least all those that didn't scatter into the upside down. I am sorry for your loss, he condoled. I found his choice of words slightly bizarre, and as if he could read my mind, he explained, I had a buddy once that was big into this kind of stuff. He looked the same way you just did when he came from school to find it all gone. His country twang was barely noticeable, though it was obvious that he was trying to mask it. He handed me a grocery bag full of broken miniatures. There wasn't much I could do to save these guys, I'm afraid. He looked genuinely sorry, as if it had been his fault that my bag was unzipped or that the wind had decided to burst at that exact moment. I found the whole thing to be incredibly 
Sweet. Thanks, Henry. I really appreciate the help. Uh, I'm Reese. And that was it. We hit it off immediately. He laughed at my dorky jokes and told his own in return. He made my sides feel as if they would split open in utter agony when he got on a roll. And he was always on a roll. We sat out in the cold, our laughter echoing out into the stairwell. Eventually, Todd and the gang came outside to see what was going on, only to find me rolling on the dirty cement of the stairs, gasping for air. The biggest grin blasted across my face that any of them had ever seen. I was laughing so hard, so engulfed in this charming and beautiful new stranger, that I didn't even notice he was shivering until Todd called my name. Henry was only wearing a thin shirt and flannel pajama pants, yet there he stood, barefoot and shivering, telling jokes just to make me laugh. I shit you not, I fell in love right then. My newly formed crush aside, there was something strange about the way Todd said my name. It was infused with a sense of dread, like he was calling out to someone that might not respond. Eventually, I managed to stifle my laughter enough to tell Todd I wasn't playing tonight. He looked exasperated. I just wrote it off as jealousy towards this handsome new stranger. Mickey, one of my oldest D&D buddies, hurried back inside, a strange look forming on his face. Todd simply stared at me. I smiled in a modest attempt to dissuade Todd from this elective path of douchebaggery. The other players went back inside, presumably to continue setting up for the game, but Todd just stood there, waiting for me to answer. If you have to know, I'm going to take my new friend Henry out for a hot cup of coffee, I said matter-of-factly. Todd mumbled something offensive sounding under his breath, as if I'd even asked him. I was clearly directing my questions to Henry, who smiled and nodded. Todd went back inside without another word, looking over his shoulder as he entered his warm domicile. He had his phone to his ear and I thought for a second I heard him calling the cops. How rude, right? I get not being thrilled about seeing the person you love with another man. But what was he going to report? A noise complaint? I'm not gonna lie though, I felt a bit guilty after my indignation subsided. The look of concern on Todd's face spoke volumes about his feelings toward me. He could be jealous if he wanted. I wanted to take Henry out for a drink. That first date was marvelous. We laughed, we talked. Henry was the perfect gentleman. Everything went so smoothly that I had a brief moment of panic. By no means was pessimism my default setting, but I was often guilty of looking a gift course in the mouth. After all, it would have saved the Trojans. I just couldn't wrap my head around a seemingly perfect individual. I decided I wouldn't test the waters a bit. I wanted to see if the charming, sensitive allure was just bait, or if this was the real Henry. As it turns out, he was the real deal. It started slowly. First, it was just random mood swings. I would defer a particularly awesome date, then kamikaze that motherfucker into a perfect nosedive of emotional instability. Every time, he'd pass my test with flying colors. It was like he was incapable of being angry or upset. He just listened and tried to empathize. When my emotional outbursts didn't yield any negative reaction, I had to up the ante. I started bailing last minute, but only on the important things. I even tried to get my mom involved, but she didn't return any of my calls. We lost seven different dinner reservations by the time I decided that he passed this test. He passed every little test with ease. I think on some level, he knew I was acting out with a purpose. And every time I did something crazy or abrupt, he would don his loving smile and deal with it. After six months of acting batty, I cut it out. 
He didn't say anything, but I think he was relieved that I decided to trust him. We stopped going out as much as our relationship passed into a more serious phase. I really did want him to meet my friends and family. I wanted him to be in every part of my life, so we decided to have a party to celebrate a year together. I called for Todd, my mom, all the siblings, the gang, and even some folks from work. Everything looked perfect. The house was clean, food was prepared, Henry was on his way over. As I looked over everything, my head started to whirl. I stumbled into the bathroom, wafting through a gray haze of confusion. The smell of cheap air fresheners and sterility assaulted my nostrils. Something was wrong. A buzz beat against my eardrums, sending waves of nausea rippling through my body. With each chromatic chime, the buzz sunk me deeper into darkness. And that side-splitting ache, oh, the absolute best part of my relationship with Henry. The ache rippled through my abdomen like hot glass. I heard the book slam into the ground, the staccato clattering of dice as they fell all around the landing. The railing slipped through my hand as I reached out for it. Reese, can you hear me? The voice was familiar, but distant. Like an elongated whisper on a shadowy and narrow hallway. Reese, blink if you can hear me. My eyes were blurry, dry, as if I'd been staring too long in one direction. Call the doctor, quickly! The voice was so soft, so caring. When I woke up, I was back in my bed. Henry was in my living room, fiddling with something on the table. It's alive! He yelled in an exaggerated German accent. It's alive! He smiled at me and I fell into his arms. What happened? I asked, my head active with warm pleasure. Where is everyone? Well, they all showed up, but you canceled at the last minute, he smiled. No one was upset, though. You didn't look well. Todd wanted to stay, but I insisted that you needed rest. I hope that wasn't overstepping. I shook my head with a grateful smile. My collection of Dungeons and Dragons miniatures covered the coffee table. Next to them, a series of paintbrushes and a magnifying glass revealed that Henry had been busy. He'd been slowly fixing each of them, carefully returning the fractured pieces to their respective bodies. He must have been working on them for hours. Armies of orcs, dragons, and undead soldiers, each repaired and repainted so well that the only way you could know of the damage was if someone told you it had once been there. He really was a perfect man. I'm almost done with these, Reese. He spoke softly. I only have one left. He let his hand drift toward the last mini on the table. It was my character, the half-elven wizard I'd spent many nights role-playing. When I fell, the head was damaged, crushed under books and the weight of my body. I'll finish it tomorrow. Let's just enjoy tonight. I'm not one to kiss and tell, but it was absolutely the best sex I'd ever had. I woke up the next day surrounded by lights and white walls. I didn't need the doctors to inform me. I knew, on some level, where I was already. I'd noticed little things before now, like how the last time I remembered eating was before leaving the house on D&D night, or how I managed to survive almost an entire year without working. I started doing the tests when I realized Henry was the only person I'd actually seen in weeks. I had to know if I could trust him, because he had been the only person I'd seen since I fell. My head ached as my eyes forced themselves to open fully for the first time in almost an entire year. There were flowers all around my room, some dying and some freshly placed. 
Get Well Soon cards long dusty crowded the windsill. And then there was Todd, a glob of drool slowly slipping its way down his chin as he slept in one of the chairs along the wall. Slowly, I sat up, trying desperately not to make any sound. I knew, of course, that in a matter of moments someone would notice I was awake, but I didn't want out of fuss. Despite the glaring obliviousness that my reality, everything I'd done, said, felt, and experienced over the last year had been a dream, I still held my breath, praying that the next person to walk through that door would be Henry. It wasn't, and as I'm sure you've already guessed, it was my mom. Her plate of hospital food shattered the ground as she rushed forward, practically tackling me against the hospital bed. As it turns out, most of my friends and family were nearby. As my mother explained, I'd been in a coma for just about a year. The doctors couldn't give her a definitive answer as to whether I would wake up. Yesterday, however, I'd apparently started talking about a dinner party. My foyer into consciousness was brief, but it was more than enough to gather my loved ones beside my bedside. The resultant chaos of my waking went by in a blur. The doctors ordered labs while nurses tended to my atrophied body. As it turns out, sleeping for nearly a year is a physically unrelenting task. The entirety of my being ached as the storm of excitement surrounded me reached its crescendo. I politely asked everyone to get the fuck out of my room, you loud-ass motherfuckers. It wasn't graceful, but I was exhausted. The doctors agreed that I needed rest, and even though getting my mom to leave was like pulling off wallpaper, eventually I found myself alone. I cried for a long time. This is all some sort of cruel joke in the cosmos, giving me back my life, but taking away the one thing for which I had been living. Then the last bit of catharsis embedded its way from my chest. I made a decision. It was hard, pulling myself out of bed for the first time in a year. But I channeled my inner Beatrix kiddo, and I wiggled my big toe. I dragged my mostly limp body into a wheelchair and made my way slowly towards the elevator. You know, they make it seem like getting to the roof of the tall building is easy as the movies, but it's pretty difficult when your limbs refuse to cooperate. At the top floor, there was a roof access point at the end of the small flight of red metal stairs. I must have looked like a fool scooting myself up each individual stair, but I made it to the top. Through the metal service door, I crawled, feelings starting to course the way through my limbs. God, it felt magnificent and grueling. The cold night air hit my face, sending crashing memories into my mind. The feeling of plummeting returned as I struggled toward the edge of the building. A harsh crack that had sent pain splitting all the way down my side, I reached up to the side where my ribs had once been broken against the stairwell. The look of horror on Todd's face when he found my body. It all flooded back as I lifted myself up, a sapling standing against the torrent of the storm. A single swift gust, and I would tumble downward fifteen floors and splat. But then, how was I ever going to see Henry again? I took a step forward. My family had already processed my loss. It wouldn't hurt as much a second time. Another step. My friends had moved on. There was no need for me in this world. Another. I closed my eyes. It would be over soon enough. Falling was the last thing, the only thing I remembered before Henry. One more step. I opened my eyes. The ledge was a toe's length away. Just one harsh gust and I could go home. But there was something I wasn't expecting to see. 
just at the tip of my toes. I squatted slightly to pick it up. My half-elven wizard stood defiantly blocking my path. A beat of confusion ran through my mind. As I looked at it closer, I saw where the head had been expertly reattached and painted over. So the only way you'd know of the damage was if someone told you it had once been there. Flipping the miniature over, I noticed tiny words etched into the plastic and the most familiar handwriting. Please don't. So, I didn't. The name Missy Mulroney may not ring a bell to you. Suffice it to say, she was a woman of vocation, and may placed one, according to her peers. It's an easy thought to conduct after a quick glimpse at her outlandish attire and self-destructing habits. To many, Missy was nothing more than a stain on their blissful, utopian town. How foolish are spiteful folk, don't you think? Everyone in town knew what Missy Mulroney was. She didn't try to hide it. She walked around town teetering unsteadily in a pair of black patent heels, makeup smeared across her face, and eyes unfocused. She was a caricature of a woman with self-esteem issues. She never even tried to cover up the track marks that laced the inside of her arms. I don't know if any of us ever knew where she came from. She just sort of showed up one day. A rare thing in our little town. The common assumption was that she'd taken up with some trucker and been dropped off in town when he'd gotten tired of her. Made as much sense as anything else. She lived and worked out of one of the only hotels in town, the Victorian Inn on Washington Street. Nobody quite understood why Mrs. Jenkins let her live there, what with her reputation and all. Mrs. Jenkins was a nice old lady and it was a shame to see her tarnished by association. I got to know Missy pretty well over the months that she lived in our town. Or at least, I got to know her unconscious body. I was an EMT then, and got called in every time Missy managed to overdose. It was the same thing every time, more or less. I'd walk into her hotel room and find her sprawled out in some state of undress. I'd pull the needle from her arm, give her a shot of naloxone, and wait for those pinpoint pupils to start winding back to life. I never knew who called about her. Probably some John who panicked and lit out as soon as he put down the phone. To their credit, none of them ever seemed to leave without calling 911 first. Missy was something of an oddity in our town. She was the lone source of crime and degradation in an otherwise safe and clean little city. My job was an easy one. Never did I get a call about murder or domestic disputes, and only the occasional car accident. If it weren't for Missy and the vagrants she attracted, I might not have had a job at all. You can see then why we all treated her with such disdain. It was Friday night when I got the now routine call about Missy. She'd overdosed, a male voice told the dispatcher. I sighed and headed towards the Victorian Inn. I expected the normal scene. 
Missy draped over a piece of hotel furniture, and the Good Samaritan caller nowhere to be found. Instead, I walked into the opposite. The hotel room was empty, except for a roomy-eyed junkie wearing two coats and rocking back and forth on the floor. The floral bedsheet was balled up near the foot of the bed, and dark stains peppered the fading green carpet. We got a call about Missy, I said, trying to get the junkie to focus on me. Missy Maroney, do you know where she is? She catches demons in their teeth, the old man said, chattering the remains of his own few teeth and laughing. I sighed. I'd have to look elsewhere for information. I turned back to the bed, thinking I'd double-check to make sure she wasn't passed out underneath. That's when the old man reached out to me. He grasped my elbow with surprising strength and spun me around. This time, his eyes were focused and intense. I know because he was inches from my face before he spoke. I could smell the rot of infection and the sweetness of stale alcohol on his breath. She does us all the service, Missy does. I nodded and rolled my eyes. I was quite familiar with the services Missy offered. You'll find her, right? The junkie asked. A gleam hunger in his eyes. I shuddered. She's a grown woman. I said, prying my elbow from the man's grasp. You're free to report her missing to the police if you want. The man gulped and turned away. We both knew he wouldn't be going to the police. I'm not proud to say it, but in that moment, I was glad that Missy was gone. The elements she attracted had no place in a town like ours. I didn't say anything to the junkie when I left. There was nothing that needed saying. He'd either move on like vagrants do or die with a needle in his arm. It wasn't that I didn't have compassion for the old man. It was just that I'd seen his story play out too many times to count, and the ending was pretty much always the same. I assumed that ending had come from Missy. It was old Mrs. Jenkins herself who called me. Missy had set up in the Victorian once again with no indication of where she'd gone or why. I wasn't on duty, so it was strange that I would get such a call. She said that I needed to come see Missy. She said that someone else needed to know. I refused at first. I told her to call dispatch if Missy needed medical attention. I told her that I was off duty and that the last thing I wanted to do was spend my personal time thinking about Missy Mulroney. Mrs. Jenkins insisted and I folded like the eggs of her famous meringue. I knocked tentatively on Missy's door when I arrived at the hotel. The mid-afternoon sun beat down on the back of my neck, making the skin there prickle with sweat. I thought about leaving when she didn't come to the door. It was too hot, and I was too irritated at the intrusion of this woman into my personal life. I couldn't fathom why Mrs. Jenkins was so intent that I come. What did she need me to know? I was about to leave when I heard a crash from inside Missy's room. Without thinking, I pounded on the door. Between the reverberations of my fist, I heard muffled screams and thuds from inside. I tried the doorknob and found it unlocked. Before I knew what I was doing, I was in Missy's room. An unconscious man was slumped in the corner, his hand covering the dark red stain on his stomach. I started to walk towards him when my attention was directed to Missy. She knelt on the bed, clawing at her clothes and thrashing like a fish on a line. She screamed, deep and guttural. Not any sound I'd ever heard a woman make. Between screams, 
She clenched her teeth together and scratched at her skin, leaving marks across the areas where the clothes had already been ripped away. I stood back. This was something I hadn't expected, and I cursed myself for not telling anyone where I was. I didn't know what drugs Missy was on, but I could see that she was beyond what I could do for her. As suddenly as the scream started, it stopped. Missy stood and stretched her body to its fullest height, nearly scraping the ceiling with her fingers. Slowly at first, then more clearly, a light seemed to pulse from within her. It grew brighter and brighter, turning her body into a transit map of blue veins. Behind me, the junkie woke from his stupor. I barely register it when he pushed past me and ran out the door. I was transfixed by the light pouring from Missy. Missy screamed again. It was different this time, high and bright, as if her body was being torn apart by the force of it. Her face was slack and the rest of her body followed, crumpling in a heap onto the bed. I cautiously approached her. Sweat beaded her nearly naked body and her pupils were pinpoints in her eyes. She looked up at me with unfocused eyes and blinked. The skin on her face was clammy and pale and it felt cold to the touch as I brushed past it to reach her neck. Her pulse raced beneath her normal, unlit skin and her mouth was smeared with red. This is not an overdose, I said quietly, feeling immediately stupid. Missy smiled, revealing bloody gums. So nice of you to notice. I helped her pull her shaking body to a sitting position. What happened here? What did I see? Missy shook her head in response. It doesn't matter. You should go now. But I do appreciate your help. I pointed to her mouth. Did you bite your tongue? Are you hurt? She shook her head again and stuck out her blood-slicked tongue. I'm just fine. I'm all fine. I looked down at the floor, where a trail of blood drops led from where the junkie was sitting to the door. That man, what happened to him? He's all better now, Missy said, her eyes rolling back into her head. Mrs. Jenkins will be along shortly to take care of the mess. If you'll excuse me, I'm, I'm very tired. I didn't want to leave Missy there, but I, I couldn't find any signs that she was in need of help. She shooed me away, and I stumbled to the office of the Victorian Inn. Mrs. Jenkins was waiting for me inside. So you've seen it then? She asked. I don't have a clue what I've seen, I said, studying myself against the counter. Sit down, said Mrs. Jenkins, gesturing to a small doily-covered table. She turned the sign in the window to close and looked back at me. Would you like some tea? I shook my head mutely, staring at my hands. Mrs. Jenkins took a steaming kettle off the hot plate in the office and poured herself a cup of tea. All the while, she never said a word, leaving me to ruminate on what I had seen in the hotel room. It wasn't natural. That much I knew. Whatever was going on with Missy was more than anything I had ever thought. Mrs. Jenkins took the seat across from me and sat her teacup in front of her. Now you have questions, I'm sure, she said. I licked my bottom lip and opened my mouth to speak. I didn't know where to start, so I opted for the big question first. What is she? Mrs. Jenkins laughed. <laughs> well, she's a young lady. Yeah, but what I saw, Mrs. Jenkins cut me off. 
Let's think about it, hmm? I nodded, confused. You ever see any junkies around town? Any thieves? Any rapists? Mrs. Jenkins asked. She pursed her lips over her teacup in blue, not bothering to make eye contact with me. Well, not as much. It's not a big town, though. And I've seen plenty in your own hotel. Miss Jenkins shot me a look that made me blush. It was unkind of me to mention the element her hotel is attracted as of late. What about outside my hotel? Do you feel safe walking through the park at night? I guess there's not much crime in town, no, I said. I was unsure where Mrs. Jenkins was going with this. And does it strike you as unusual? Not really. It's the way things should be. Ha 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 ha, the way things should be, said Mrs. Jenkins, twisting my words back at me with a hard laugh. I don't think you're following me here, so let me be more direct. Those junkies that hang out in my hotel parking lot, do you ever see them again? I thought hard. I tried to conjure up the dirty faces of the men I had seen over the last few months. Some were distinctive, most were not. None I could remember having ever seen again. Well, no. I said, but they're vagrants. It's to be expected they move on. What if I told you, you did see them again? You know Mr. Lawrence, the new librarian? The question caught me off guard. Thomas Lawrence, the straight-laced librarian who just relocated to our town, could not have been a former junkie. I furrowed my brow at Mrs. Jenkins and waited for her to continue. I was tired of her games. And of course that sweet young man who bags groceries now at the price cutter. The redhead? There are new people in town, true. Where are you going with this? Only that those people aren't new at all. They've been here a while, unnoticed and avoided by the good people like yourself. Only Missy ever cared enough to see the humanity in them. Are you telling me she's been rehabilitating them? Mrs. Jenkins smiled. No, my dear. She's been curing them. She's been taking their demons as her own. Taking their demons as her own. They walk into that hotel room broken, forgotten. Missy takes up their flesh, and they walk out again, whole. They leave better. You understand? And Missy leaves worse. Oh, pardon me, dear. We've got a guest outside. Mrs. Jenkins scooped up her teacup and walked toward the door, greeting the young couple there with a smile. I sat dazed at the table wanting nothing more than to stay and ask more and more questions of Mrs. Jenkins. But I knew she wouldn't give me anything else. I left the Victorian Inn and walked toward downtown. It was getting dark, and a chill had settled into the concrete and brick around me. Everywhere I looked, happy families were walking down the street, carelessly chattering away about sports scores and shopping halls. There was nothing to threaten them, nothing to take their attention away from one another. I thought about all that Mrs. Jenkins had implied and shuddered. I got the call the night Missy died. Why they called me and not the coroner directly, I'll never know. There was no way anyone could have mistaken her for someone in need of medical help. Her body was spread eagle across the bed, which had turned red beneath her. Chunks of flesh were missing from her body at regular intervals, and claw marks raked her naked torso and face. Blood spilled from her mouth like a cup overflowing with wine. I turned away from her to focus on the pattern of the carpet. 
the investigators were perplexed. Ultimately, they said it was the first case of auto-cannibalism in our state's history. They blamed it on the PCP and Missy's system. They didn't know why shock didn't stop her. They didn't really care. As far as they were concerned, she was another drug-addled whore who just happened to go out in the most flamboyant way that she could think of. I have a theory about it. I have a theory about the woman who caught demons in her teeth, who wrenched them free and caged them within herself. I have a theory about a woman who saw the cage crumbling and destroy it in the only way she knew how. There was no funeral for Missy. I was alone in paying my respects over a box of ashes in the coroner's office. What happens to the ashes? I asked the great coroner when I was finished. He looked at me curiously. Nothing for a while. If no one comes to claim them, then we'll hold them for the minimum allowed by law. After that, we'll toss them. Let me know if they stay unclaimed, I said. I'd like to give them a proper burial. And I did. It was four years later when I got the call. That time flew by in a blur of calls about homicides, overdoses, and domestic disputes. It was almost overnight that our sweet, safe little city fell apart. The higher-ups and politicians blamed the opioid epidemic and alluded opaquely to shifting demographics. But I knew the real cause. I had a stone prepared for Missy in the local cemetery. It was a nice one, with a weeping angel on top. The epitaph was simple. Here lies Missy Moroni, who caught demons in her teeth. Oh my, look at the hour. It's amazing how time flies when you're having fun. And yet, you seem a bit troubled. One of my stories struck a chord too close to home, perhaps? Oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm expecting company. Some of our permanent guests are hosting a party here at the inn. Care to join us? No? Pity. I think you would have liked them. Oh, and I'm sure they would have loved your liveliness. <laughs> Do stop by again, though. We'll be waiting for you. I will have some new stories that'll make your skin crawl just the way you like it. Goodbye, my friend. Till we meet again. On this life. Or the next. And now it's announcement time. Before you leave, I'd like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices during these horror tales. Along with everyone else who's been involved with bringing the horror to life here at the Cursed Inn. If you're a writer and you think your story is sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us a demo at thecursedin at gmail.com. We're always looking for new stories and talents to scare our guests. And please, don't forget to check out our page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon. <laughs>